0: What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Michael Saunders, co-founder and CEO of Captain, a white label restaurant ordering platform that recently launched Supper Club, a web three eating community where foodies get rewarded for supporting their favorite restaurants. In this episode, we'll chat about the potential for the blockchain to power restaurant transactions, the evolution of restaurant delivery, and the myriad use cases for Web3 at chains like Starbucks and Chipotle. Alrighty, I'm very excited to be joined today by Mike Saunders. He is the founder and CEO of Captain, a white label ordering platform that recently launched Supper Club, an eat-to-earn crypto wallet where foodies get rewarded in food coin for supporting their favorite restaurants. Prior to captain, Mike was the founder of Dot Menu, the company behind campus food and all menus that was founded in 1997 and sold to Grubhub in 2011. Mike, pleasure to have you on board. Thanks for having me. I'm very curious about your background, obviously, and, and the evolution to Web3. But before we get into all the, the latest and greatest, I'd love to kind of go back in time and paint us a picture about what the food delivery landscape looked like in 97 through the dot com bubble and and how did you get to where you are now
1: sure, sure, so so in nineteen ninety seven there really wasn't much of a of a food uh, delivery landscape really early early days, the only people with high speed internet were in college the, the part of the reason I launched campus <laughs> food was there really was no one else doing any sort of e-commerce outside of that because it was just so so prohibitive, and there's so much friction
0: <laughs> so I was I guess one of those lucky people
1: <laughs> absolutely so. You know, I, I, was a, I was a junior uh, at Penn in college and, and uh, you know, me launching into the space was I, I just couldn't get a tuna hoagie uh, mm-hmm. for my local restaurant and, and knew just enough about the internet to, uh, to be dangerous. You know, early days of programming and, and really there was just such a hole in the space. You know, before then, everything was just, you know, your, your, your landline, there wasn't even cell phones and uh, you get a lot of busy signals. You call your favorite restaurants and, and get locked with the busy signal. I couldn't get my hoagie because uh got busy signals, got put on hold, and then ultimately they disconnected on me. And so re- really, for, for years, there really was no, there's no one in the space, right? We were very early. Soon after us, you know, we saw Domino's experiment with something called, like, I think, I believe it was called Quick Order. You know, Seamless came out next. Seamless came out in the early 2000s around corporate because the next people to get high-speed internet were in the business uh, landscape, it wasn't until maybe '03 or so where Grubhub came around where uh, with consumer, and it really mapped the adoption of broadband.
0: Fascinating. So you were doing, like, talk to us about Campus Food, how you were doing the delivery. I was just going through some of my receipts from 13 years ago, dating myself oh, here. And uh, it looked like a lot of my transactions were all cash. And then there was like a $2 delivery fee. Can you talk about how that remittance worked between, like, the restaurants and the customers and how you guys got paid and kind of the business model back then?
1: Sure. sure. So the business model was actually very similar to, you know, to everything, you know, up to the point where all these third parties do their own delivery. Uh, You know, early days, we were really more of a discovery platform. You know, we considered ourselves a food court. And uh, the reason you did a lot of cash orders is the idea of paying with a credit card in 97, 98 on the Internet was uh, was almost impossible. Right? You know getting our first you know credit card transaction online, you know happened mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. so for the for the first wave, it really was all cash. right? So Got really it. we were a we were more of a competitor to the yellow pages back then, really that that digital food court that allowed the 20 local restaurants near any given college to connect with customers around them that were becoming more and more internet savvy. And we were actually, when a customer would order from a local restaurant, uh, we would, you know, digitize that order. We would actually fax it over to the restaurant, right? So, wow. you know, re- really old school tech. You know, now you go in, you see a bunch of tablets. Uh, you know, for a long, long time, there were fax machines involved.
0: <laughs>
1: and so, you know, as, as the, the model evolved, like we were we were basically charging a 5%, uh, you know, transaction fee early days. And that was just the model. And we would, uh, you know, that $2 delivery must have been what they were charging their driver. The mm. landscape of delivery changed quite dramatically uh, around 2012, 2013. But before then, there was just a lot of independent, uh, a loose federation of drivers and, and drivers that would associate with a certain restaurant or a bunch of restaurants. We were, we were facilitators, but we weren't in the middle of that transaction.
0: Yeah, it totally makes sense. Like Essentially, you were just replacing my phone call to Koch's Deli up the street, um, where I believe my picture is still up on the, uh, on the wall uh shout out to you you know west philly people out there people who know and uh you know faxing that order using their drivers doing it all in cash and then tallying up your gross sales at the end of the month and saying hey you did x amount of dollars on our platform you owe us xyz cut us a check because you guys basically had no You didn't control the transaction, so it was kind of all on the back end. Is that correct?
1: We we didn't. We didn't. That's exactly right. We were really trying to, you know, it wasn't until we were doing the credit card transactions did we realize we could really sit in the middle of the transaction and and facilitate uh, payment the other way, where we would get paid first before the merchants. Because what I learned uh, early on was that restaurants don't like to, they they pay the internet uh, marketing uh, team way below the bread guy so you know uh, chasing down restaurants which it wasn't a great experience for us or for our our partners
0: so you started this business you also started all menus can you just briefly touch on how that complemented campus food or how those two businesses kind of aligned
1: sure sure so uh look so i started you know 97 in uh i I was still in college at the time Uh, we ultimately grew it to about 300 universities over the years right? So, you know, about 13 years later, we were at 300 schools around the country. Uh, We realized we needed to go beyond college halfway through. And while we had a lot of restaurants, for example, we had all the major universities in Boston, about half our orders in Boston at the time were coming from non-college students. We still had a branding issue where we were known as Mm -hmm. campus food. Fantastic for the customers we had, but it really locked us into uh, moving beyond that. And this is around 2006 or so you know, basically Google and SEO became very, very powerful. And we were early enough in the in the wave where we thought we could really take advantage of the Google search index because, you know, all, everyone's searching for some large, you know, terms. But back then the idea of searching for, you know, Koch's deli menu was not as, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of uh, hits for it back in the day. So the reason behind creating all menus really was to create a marketing platform to, better direct google traffic to the to the right place. So it wasn't even about ordering back then, it was just about how do we help these restaurants get the traffic from google more directly? And you know, so we had these two brands all of a sudden, we had campus food doing transactions in in basically college markets with you know, most everywhere is a college market. And then we also had all menus which served about you know, at the time it was about, you know, 100,000, 150,000 menus across the country. We would just basically you know, grab PDFs and scan them uh, and data enter them. And it was just a tech searchable mm-hmm. menu.
0: And so no, no marketplace attached to that at all. No, we, no, we, we
1: used it as a you know, lead gen for some of the college marketing that we did. We were lead gen for, you know, for, you know companies like OpenTable at the time, we would send, send uh, transactions, but it really, you know, in a lot of ways it was a uh, search engine optimization experiment gone too well. <laughs> right. So, you know, it, uh, It gave us, you know, the opportunity to experiment with how to move beyond college. Mm. But, you know, again, I think the the dot menu holding company was really more meant to hold those two. Uh, But really, they were, you know, the the business itself was mostly around college and college markets. You know, again, it blended in in Boston, D.C., Philly, where more than half the customers toward the end were were not Mm. in college.
0: Fascinating. So it's really it was really an ad driven model. You weren't charging the restaurants to put their menus up online or anything like that
1: we had this entire network of you know we didn't realize it at the time but it was more like a gig economy of people would uh run around and grab paper menus and mail to us for a, a buck a menu oh, and we wow. had a whole model where it would uh you know our office just had piles of menus everywhere and uh, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty crazy
0: this is before the days when restaurants started updating their menus every week or every day just to you know make it even more challenging
1: You know, it's come so far, you know, you see a lot of these restaurants, websites still feel like they're, you know, about 10 years old, 15 years old, but it's still so much farther ahead of where, where it used to be. You know, we would, you know, getting a PDF from a restaurant was, was impossible back in the day.
0: That's, yeah, I totally believe that. Um, I'd love to, to kind of transition and talk a bit about Grubhub. So at some point, let's say 2011, you get a phone call from Grubhub and end up selling to them. I'm curious about what they saw. I was, I'm assuming it's that opportunity for all the college and non-college growth of all menus as well. And, you know, I would love for you to talk also about kind of their, their decision to go from being a pure play marketplace as Campus Food was to something that was logistics enabled and what that was all like.
1: Oh, absolutely. So so 2011, you know, you got to remember the time. 2011, you had this wave of companies going public in the local space. Like local became hot. Around, around Groupon, around Yelp. And you know we, we never took in VC money as campus food, uh, but we saw pretty fa- quickly in, in 2010, 2011, Grubhub raised money from, from Benchmark and uh, raised 10 million bucks and then three months later raised another 20. And so, so we knew pretty fast we would have to go out and raise in order to be competitive because you really had Grubhub, you had Seamless, you had us and, and a few smaller players. And so we went out to, to raise money, uh, you know, a couple of VC meetings. And after, like, the second VC meeting, we got the call from one of the people on, on, at Benchmark and then from Grubhub saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if we just put this together, right? So, you know, I think the thinking at the time was, uh, you know, it was almost like the regional banks back in the day. Like, there was definitely a, uh, you know, we, we all had our territories on the risk board. And so, you know, Grubhub was very, very strong in Chicago and San Francisco. And, and you know, we had all these kind of tier two markets uh, when we actually looked to put the user bases together, we realized that we were actually training people in college to like then move to a major city and then order from Grubhub. You know, our, you know, didn't really think in the terms of, you know, LTV and CAC back in the day, but really we were, you know, our lifetime value was capped at the four years, right? Or for four years, at least on the college side of the business. And so we really was, a, you know, a, a, a geographic roll-up play where we ultimately, um, you know, it was Benchmark and Lightspeed that rolled us up into Grubhub, and and uh, it was a it was a smart move.
0: Fascinating. So then there was that infamous memo where, you know, the CEO, I believe the CEO of Grubhub at the time, was it Matt Maloney, was you know basically like we have all these competitors like Postmates and Uber who are not only handling these transactions for the restaurants, but they're also providing the drivers and we know that this is going to require a significant investment it's going to make us unprofitable but you know either we we sit back and watch this happen and let the customers go to these platforms where that can basically aggregate every restaurant that doesn't have delivery or we can play in that space and they did it and they 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 took that pill and i'm curious what your thoughts are on on whether that was the right call
1: Absolutely. So so, uh, I walked you up to 2011, where we put the companies together. And uh, a year later, we, uh, you know, we did another transaction with Seamless, where we put Seamless, you know, in. So we rolled up the whole, you know, geographic uh, play. You know, around that same time, you have the iPhone gaining more traction, the App Store is gaining more traction. And really, Web 1 was turning into Web 2, you know, with the advent of Postmates, uh, ultimately Uber Eats and DoorDash. And really the unlock of mobile allowed for them to basically commoditize ordering and add delivery as the innovation layer. You can track your food, you know where it is. You know, really they can control more of a full stack of of the experience. You know, we went from uh, fax machines to tablets. All of a sudden you're going from fax machines to tablets to like phones in your pocket to get the orders across. So we saw that shift happen with Postmates. Postmates was the first in the space. And it wasn't just Postmates, it was Postmates plus this, this new world of very large investments like a soft bank that would you know, over invest in you know, growth at all costs. So you know, one of my, you know, I, I was at Grubhub, I, I moved from, you know, from New York to Chicago to be part of the executive team at Grubhub. I was there for about four years. Halfway through, we saw the writing on the wall and, you know, one of my projects was, uh, was launch delivery, right? So we saw this and we said, we don't know what we don't know, right? It's, you know, at the time we were much, much bigger. It was, let's at least do this ourselves, learn the metrics and then make a build ber- versus uh, buy decision later on. So, so I think it was very, very smart to get into delivery. I think delivery opened up, it made the consumer experience way better. I think as a user, I want to know where my food is. You know, there was a time where you wouldn't know where your food was and it would make you super anxious. And but, but I also think that, you know, the expectation in building out the delivery network, at least in my opinion, was never about, you know, make money off the delivery. It was, hey, if you can run a really efficient delivery network, you could grow the addressable market of all restaurants right? So it wasn't just, you know, why let all these individual restaurants be sub-scale, finding drivers, serving drivers? Could you really have a, you know, use the Web2 tech of, you know, basically GPS-enabled uh, apps to create like a routing network? And, and I do think that was very smart and it created a lot of opportunity. Uh, but I think that paired with grow at all costs created a, a lot of, uh, you know, friction in the industry, you know? Grupa, we, we went public in, I think 13 uh, 13 or 14. and um, we were looking at different metrics. We were looking at you know at smart growth basically, as opposed to just you know give you know, there, there were memes back in the day about eat, people eating off the VC dollar for free. And uh, you know again, you know, in retrospect it, it worked. It worked for a, a, a whole bunch of reasons, but uh, but I do think delivery as a service for the consumer was a smart smart move.
0: Fascinating times and, and evolution. So that I'd love to hear that. So, you know, you eventually leave Grubhub and, and some years later, you start Captain, which is a white label, direct ordering channel for brands like Fat Burger and lots of other brands. What was the problem you identified that made you say, Hey, I'm going to do this, get back into the space. We're post Grubhub era here. What is the thing that you're focused on at this point of trying to solve?
1: So, so this, so you know, again, I, I leave Grubhub just stay, stay away from that part of the business. I, I did get involved with a couple of startups in the space just to keep myself uh, plugged into where things were going. You know, in a lot of ways, I thought, you know, innovation was, you know, we were just going to see the same thing play out. What, what I didn't expect was how aggressive the value capture got in the middle. There, there was a, a wave of time where. I don't know if it was because the, the growth wasn't happening, but companies like Grubhub and, and others would just keep on jacking up fees. So two things were happening. It was number one, fees were going up. I was charging 5% back in the day, you know, in the 90s. And now, you know, the minimum rate to get on the service was 20%, right? And, and that, that difference is massive when you're a small business and your margins are so small. And so on one side, the, the, the rates were becoming untenable, And games were being played by all these different middlemen to hide customer data from the restaurants. So the restaurants, these small businesses that we were empowering, or we thought we were empowering early on, all of a sudden became just, you know, getting commoditized, being tried to get commoditized through hiding customer data and higher fees. And that was really one of the main reasons, uh, you know, I, I jumped in with Captain. It was like, how do you help these guys just take back their customers? Because look, we've seen there were some simple marketing tricks, you know, from the SEO days to a lot of simple things now where if these restaurants just do, you know, five small things right, they really can retain most of their order flow. And your best customer as a restaurant should be your most profitable. It shouldn't be your most expensive. And that was one of the main reasons, uh, you know, we we started Captain.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the the cannibalization of, you know, if you think about 20 to 30% of your sales going to those top customers that don't have any other way to order because you haven't set up the, haven't done what is now I think considered table stakes for the industry, which is set up a direct channel. That's, that's just money eroding or your margin is completely eroding.
1: And and so we started this, you know, back in, you know, 2000, you know, the end of 18, basically 2019. And, you know, I I think, and then we saw COVID hit and COVID was just a massive accelerant for all these restaurants needing to figure out how to react to a direct channel. And and even today, I think a lot of restaurants do it okay, but you know it's very hard to you know do this uh, you know and compete with these much larger organizations that specialize in digital marketing.
0: Totally. So with Captain, you're I'm assuming you're partnered with a, a lot of these same players who are just offering the last mile capabilities, and and the restaurants have the ability to either subsidize or pass on those fees to the customer. Yeah,
1: Exactly. I think look, there, there's a there's a wide network of of folks that will deliver your food for six or seven bucks a a delivery, right? DoorDash has their own DoorDash drive. You've got, you know, Relay and Vromo and a ton of other, and they all do great jobs at this. But, but again, it's, you know, no one's trying to, it's a very hard business to make a ton of money off these delivery drivers. And it's it's, my opinion, the the wrong way to look at it, right? Delivery opens up the access to marketing. So, you know, how do you have Mm -hmm. delivery as a service becomes, you know, more of an opera, you know, an opportunity for, for all these pieces to get plugged together.
0: Yes. So you go from delivery as a service to now really looking at web three. I'm just curious on a personal level, what got you hooked in there? What are some of the protocols and projects that got you really pumped on the potential and got you really kind of down the rabbit hole?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when I, when we started captain, you know, Direct ordering was interesting, but there were also plenty of other folks in the space that were doing it, right? It was a pretty crowded space even in 2018, you know, with Chow Now being the, you know, OG, you know, folks in the space that were were doing direct ordering. We didn't really see direct ordering as, you know, the business we wanted to build. We saw that as a way to, to get involved and help with restaurants, right? You know, ultimately, the 2018, another major thing, you know, hit my personal interest, you know, which was crypto, Right. And with you know, you really had Ethereum and Crypto Kitties, and that was the exact same time where these, these concepts were becoming, you know, mainstream in, in, the, in the techie communities. And so you've had, hey, restaurants are getting screwed as one major pillar. And you hey have, hey, crypto enables individuals to own their own data, money, X. And so, you know, my take was this is going to intersect with. With everything, every marketplace is going to get, you know, unbundled, basically. And, hey, I'm getting all these calls anyway from restaurants that are, like, you know, screaming help. Like, can we combine these two worlds? You know, I think the quick answer in 2018 was, no, you cannot combine these two worlds. Right? It is way too early in crypto to do anything material. But that's why we set out on the direct ordering tech, because it gave us an opportunity to build and to help and to create real value while we were comfortable basically walking in the wilderness to figure out you know where this crypto thing goes
0: okay so fast forward to i guess the, you know fairly recently this year you launched supper club which is a wallet and a and a currency i believe called food coin i guess Talk to us about how it works at a high level. Explain it to, like you're explaining it to my grandmother, I guess. And how does it fit into the? the, well, the, the well, I this think our target audience system. is a little younger uh, to start. <laughs> okay, maybe my mom.
1: Look, I think, I guess I'll, I'll back up and, and talk about some of the tech. You know, I think earlier this year, we had the aha moment where where some of the crypto Rails, the web three rails became something we can build upon. It wasn't just theoretical. It wasn't just about you know if, you know things go up and tokens go up. It was about as a builder, you could actually like do things to help people with this. And so you know, look, ultimately, the idea of Supper Club needed to be its own brand, It needed to be a consumer facing brand. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is better connect the individual customer with the individual restaurant without so much value capture in between. We really wanted to like empower the user to, you know, in effect, own their own data, control their dollars, and be able to order directly from restaurants in a way where the middleman wasn't really playing hide the ball with fees, with menu price inflation, with hiding data along the way. So really what I see as, you know, the same way DoorDash was an evolution of Grubhub, you know, I hope Supper Club could be an evolution of DoorDash around basically uh payment rewards and membership
0: mm. fascinating so you're built on top of something called solana i'm sure there's some people who are familiar with it but many who aren't i guess like how did you go through the landscape of different technologies that are out there you have layer one and, and layer two protocols you know where does this fit into the ecosystem and, and why did you choose to go that route
1: uh, absolutely so so look i think you know the like everyone knows Bitcoin, right? You know, Bitcoin you know, did a lot of things really, really well, but it was, you know, Ethereum that really became more programmable you know, in 2018, which has opened up people's uh, excitement to figure out how, to, how do people use this. I, I think the challenge with Ethereum, you know, for anyone who's developing on it, is that it, it's expensive to make a transaction, right? The idea that somebody's gonna spend, you know, five, fifty bucks to, you know, buy something is, is comical. Right. And so, you know, about a year ago, you know, we saw, and I guess these are all called layer ones, right? And so Ethereum's the the large one. And the other one that came about that we were just fascinated with was called Solana. And Solana uses, you know, you know, it has different pros and different cons, but right out the gate was able to handle, you I think even today it does 50,000 transactions a second, a transaction cost a fraction of a penny, and it just allowed us to go. Right. So we started building on Ethereum and then as we start building, we realize we're spending all of our time optimizing the consumer experience for fees. And yes, there were other like layer twos and polygon and all this other tech, but it just became very clunky. And we were really building for a very, very narrow crypto degen community. And that doesn't really scale with people who eat, right? It's just a little too narrow. (laughs) So the bet was that, you know, we were early enough. Solana was, I mean, frankly, it was good enough where we wanted to go, go, go and learn. And and since then, I've only been more impressed actually using it.
0: Fascinating. Um, I love what you said about the overlap between degens and people who eat food. And I think it's interesting to think about crypto becoming a part of the hive mind here um, and being part of that consumerification, which we will talk, I think, later about but I'd love to kind of talk about what this looks like for the consumer today and some of the events that you've been hosting. So you've, you did, you did something in Chicago recently for NFT Day and you had these other events called Food Fights. I guess walk us through what you've had people doing out there in the wild with this technology and, and why Web3 is enabling it as opposed to something that is a little bit more primitive.
1: Sure, sure. So look, I, I think... My bet is we are still very, very early. You know, I, I think when you look back at you know what got me super excited about campus food in, in 1997, I think a lot of people feel very similar about crypto and, and today. There's a lot of similarities we see with how this technology can really create something better for everybody, right? You know, it's the idea that you can you know empower the individual, f the middleman, you know, some combination of the two is built into what I think inspires people about crypto. You know, I think, you know, for me, ultimately, yes, there is a goal of let's really create these consumer experiences that really help restaurants engage with their consumers. I think that's ultimately the, the vision. But I think the feasibility of that is just like, you need this technology as an unlock to make it all happen. Like, I think nobody trusts anybody in this space. These restaurants have been screwed time and time again. And you almost need these open protocols, this open composable layer, for them to really have more of that direct relationship. So, yes, you know, we started experimenting with, with you know, we've done NFTs that unlock free burgers for Fatburger for National uh, Burger Day in May, and we built our digital wallet, Supper Club, which is in the App Store. Uh, but we're ultimately launching a suite of events to really prove to ourselves and prove to our customers how this can get used. I think it is still very, very early days. And I don't think everyone is gonna mass switch from DoorDash to Supper Club, but, but I do think that there are reasons why they should, right? I think there's an education component with the consumer base that needs to happen and happen over time that, you know, I think, look, it, it's a shame right now that when you order 15 bucks worth of your local, you know, burger shop, and your bill's 45 bucks, everybody hates everybody, right? <laughs> Again, it's menu inflation, hidden fees, surcharges, right? Like, there's just no reason there needs to be, it's so extractive. And, and you're starting to see, you know, companies add credit card surcharges and hospitality surcharges. And it's really just a fight to protect their margin in a world where inflation is going up, yet too many people have their hands in these restaurants' pockets, and so, it's a long-winded way of saying, you, know, you mentioned food fight and NFT day. Like we've got a very specific roadmap of where we see this going, and we're, uh, we we want to just not make this so academic. We want to just put out real like use cases to to test our some hypotheses.
0: Yeah, love that. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There's way too many people trying to get in the in the their hand in the pot there for the restaurants amidst all these other headwinds, which is probably means there's no better time for. Not only Captain, but for Supper Club. So uh, yeah, I'd love to dive in. You know, to to this like tweet storm that you put out recently about the food fight event, I believe. And um, you kind of started by giving everyone some food coin, and they were able to do all sorts of cool stuff with the, you know, ba- redeeming it for drinks, or um, and also this kind of augmented reality approach with collecting these NFTs. So I'm just walk us through one of these events and. What you thought were some really cool use cases that were specific to Web three that couldn't you don't think could have been done through the traditional network?
1: No, absolutely. So, so I think what's so special about Web three is it really allows a user and uh, another user or a user and a merchant to work without anyone in the middle. So we threw a private event, you know, called Food Fight, and really what we wanted to do is we wanted to actually see this working for real, right? So when someone came into this event and about a hundred people show up, you know, upon joining this private event, you know, in the app, uh, they were airdropped some promotional dollar. You know, FoodCoin is a promotional, you know, it's basically promotional cash, right? We we airdropped them some promotional cash to to actually make transactions on their own. We also uh, airdropped them some drink tickets. Uh, And look, I'm also a big believer of like USDC as a digital cash currency, where people should just, you know, it shouldn't be about, you know, what's the price of my burrito today? You know, a dollar should be a dollar when you're worrying about what to order from. So, so this event had all the different ways to buy your food, but we really wanted to also see what does it mean to use your, your phone as a wallet? How can I create an experience where, you know, digital and IRL start to bridge? You know, and what we realized pretty fast was that, you know, you've had Visa MasterCard forever. Right. And then you have this new wave of wallets like Cash App and Apple Pay that are basically treating your phone as you know software eating eating the payment networks. And so the bet is that long, long term, you know, it will all look the same. You won't know if you're on Visa or Cash App or Apple Pay or Supper Club, but like behind the scenes, these web three technologies allow for frictionless transactions to save even the 2.9 and 30 cents that everyone has friction pay. So, so the event, yes, you showed up, you got a bunch of stuff on your phone, some digital tokens, and we basically wanted to watch what would happen when somebody, you know, buys a burger with a token, when somebody engages. And, you know, we experimented with, with QR codes, with NFC tags, you know, I think more and more, you know, users, you know, we all have our phones on us at all times. And because of that, we are basically, you know, walking around with our mini computers everywhere, able to engage with other people's mini computers. You know, it's like, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, like, hey, let my assistant talk to your assistant and let's come up with the best deal for both of us. is kind of where this goes. And as a consumer, the bet is that, you know, hi, I'm Matt, you know, this is my order history. What are you going to give me? Is kind of the, the the quid pro quo that should be necessary to get the best deal from a, a, your local restaurant, not the worst deal, right? And, and all the things that go wrong and hide that today make that difficult. And so for Food Fight, our event was, you know, we had 10 very specific things we wanted to test. And, you know, that really was our MVP for testing things from promotional cash to USDC to, you know, NFC tags and and, and
0: all of the above. Are there any like key takeaways that you think any aha moments that are light bulbs that went off where you said, wow, if we had mainstream adoption of this wallet and we had all these restaurants signed up, this would be game changing. I mean, saving the 2.9% is already a game changer, obviously, because you're dealing with such tight margins and anyone who can make the speed of the, those payments um, a lot faster and more decentralized is going you know it's is going to be a beneficiary of that. But are there any other other interesting takeaways about the power of this?
1: Yeah look, I you know I think there's a again I go back to my my campus food days, there's a massive education piece that has to happen. I think I think there's we're a long ways away from going from crypto degen to crypto curious to crypto mainstream. And I think if we're using terms even like crypto or even web three were confusing people, right? So, you know, I I think, you know, look, I had one user at the event say, wow, this is my first, you know, crypto transaction. And it feels like using Uber for the first time. It just feels Mm -hmm. different when I'm moving something from my phone to your phone without a middleman, right? I don't need Visa in the way or PayPal in the way or Grubhub in the way, I can just give you a, you know, in effect, you know, I give you back a coupon, or I can give you back, you know, five bucks in USDC, right? So, you know, I, I think it was very, it was exciting. I think the whole team we were super excited at the end uh, when we when we uh, when the event ended. Um, you know, it it just works. I, I think I think there's this is not going to all happen in the next three months, but but this feels again like the, at some point the internet was inevitable, and and to me what these blockchains unlock are the inevitability of people you know getting more for their money right like the whole you know the whole idea of this is let's you know restaurants should pay for you know value created the value capture should not just be a tax
0: so it's like it's essentially what you're describing in the future is is a wallet where i can receive anything from any restaurant in the form of like a promotion or and that would be maybe a, an NFT that would be redeemable for something in the future. And I'd have a common way of paying at all these different places, as opposed to just opening up the Chipotle app and using my loyalty program there, opening up all these disparate apps that I would say my top three fast casual restaurants that I wanna earn loyalty points and accrue, I would have a, a common currency where I could go and spend that across all these different venues. I'd have a common wallet that I could go and collect all these rewards. I don't have to go fishing for all these different things in all these different places. It's all kind of on the blockchain and kind of decentralized, but also consolidated into a single user experience.
1: Exactly. Where the owner of that consolidation is not me, the middleman, but the user themselves. You know, I see Supper Club turning into a wallet for the future of dining. I I would like to see Supper Club turn into the best membership and rewards program for people who like to eat. Right. And, and I think there's some, you know, there's some purchasing power. Look like Grubhub is able to negotiate pretty high rates, but you know, the downside is they get to keep it all right. Like I, I think, you know, if the community works together, you know, and coordinates, I think that you can get more bang for your buck. You can get better discounts. You could, you know, really start to segment, you know, the best customers can get better experiences. I, I think there's so much friction right now in connecting a specific diner with a specific merchant that, you know, when you scale all these, you know, restaurant tech businesses, it gets very, very difficult. You know, what you need is you need this minimally extractive coordinating layer to allow customers and merchants to talk to each other. Right, and I think that's the excitement of what what all this technology opens up. And, and I would like, supper club to feel more like a web 2.5 experience as a way to just, you know, order better, get more for your money, you know, whether it's online or in store, uh, you know, the innovation is around how you pay and what you get for your money.
0: So outside the, the, the transaction, you've also like sent people out into the wild and you have them like essentially doing these scavenger hunts where they're, they're finding NFTs. You talk a little bit more about that kind of and and how you envision that playing a role in the broader restaurant, you know, experience yeah. for customers.
1: Look, look, I, I, you know, again, I feel like a lot of my worldview is is you know painted by you know what I've seen in the you know in the, the earlier days of with Web one and Web two, you know, Groupon, Yelp, Grubhub came of being after the you know Googles and Amazons of the world because local just doesn't scale the same way, right? Local, you know, has a lot of challenges, right? Uh, you know, what makes it special also makes it hard to just scale for the sake of scaling. And so, you know, I think there's something really interesting about how do you bridge, how do you use that to your advantage? How does something local become, you know, a power-up as opposed to just something that is friction for, you know, you know friction for the user, friction for the merchant? So in a lot of ways I'm really interested in like digital to real world bridging, right? You have all these restaurants, you know, there's a lot of discussion about local favorites versus ghost kitchens, but you know, I think people have a real affinity to their local favorite, right? It's part of the community. It's in the neighborhood. There's a, they're paying taxes, you know, for, you know, in the community as well. You know, they're like many artists or many celebrities in the community. How can you, Make that, you know, how do you turn their stores into more, you know, into this digital world, right? And so for me, this scavenger hunt was interesting. You know, again, I think the phones are getting better, smarter, you know, uh, QR codes, NFC tags are all making it easier and easier for us to communicate, you know, or for our assistants to communicate with each other, right? For our phones to communicate. And so, again, we've got this roadmap of, experiences, experiments, and, uh, and you know, events we want to run that check off all these boxes to watch how people engage, right? I think it's amazing if, you know, there's Pokemon Go style experiences, but all of a sudden it's a bar crawl, right? Or all of a sudden you can really communicate, yeah. you know, bring the community into, you know, these merchants, ultimately, what are we? We're like a marketing layer, right? So, you know, we got to be able to grab someone's attention and, and you know, remind them that their favorite restaurant needs their business on Tuesday. Like So I think all of these things roll into that down the road, but for right now, they are really more primitives that are building blocks for something much, much bigger.
0: Yeah, I love this idea of a digital playground where, you know, you're essentially gamifying that experience for people who love food and love supporting local artisans. I think that's really powerful and super unique. But I still come back to the skeptical side of myself. It says... Restauranteurs can't even get the basics figured out, right? We have have so many issues that they're dealing with and then you bring to them something that is at this primitive stage and so difficult to understand for many, how do you get them bought in? What do you need from them? What are the big adopt like barriers to making this scale? At the end of the day, is it going to look any different than a toast coming in and selling them something or are they going to have to become a little bit more savvy? Will they know the difference at the end of the day?
1: So, look, look, I I do think historically restaurants have been the last to adopt new technology. And I think if you go at a restaurant today and say, hey, join our crypto scavenger hunt, you know, you you get kicked out pretty fast. Right. You (laughs) know, I, I think there's definitely a wave of of savvy owners that do want to like be on the bleeding edge. I think, you know, there is a there's a community out there that wants to engage with this and wants to give you their attention but like ultimately to the, to the restaurant, this really just needs to be access to more new customers, right? So, you know, I think ultimately, if it can be as simple as plug this in and get more customers, keep your data, keep, you know, get cheaper fees, you know, better, faster, cheaper, always works, right? I, I think the, I think Toast does an amazing job. Look, look, I think all these guys, Clover, Square, you know, they all do amazing jobs as a restaurant OS, but that means there's an opportunity for a better community of diners to coordinate. You know, on the other side, I think you've got the, you know, I, I see a future where the OS is uh, the restaurant OS should be looking for any way to get more customers in the door, right? You know, part of why we started with online first-party ordering was so that we can integrate you know, directly with a lot of these guys, right? So for us, it's just, you know, you know, this is so much easier with all these restaurant operating systems than it was 20 years ago, where, you know, they'd have like a Windows PC that didn't talk to anything, right? And so, you know, I think the friction is getting removed from the industry. And it, look, it's, personally, I think it's important that it's always the restaurants that own their customer and their data, And that all of these operating systems are open to, you know, accepting orders and pushing, allowing anybody to drive business on behalf of the restaurant.
0: Interesting. So, you know, I've always said, like, when we use a website, we don't talk about Ruby on Rails or PHP or something. And you don't think Twilio when you get a text from Uber and you don't think about all these things when you're using them. But these are the fundamental building blocks, the primitives of the, the consumer experiences that we've come to expect throughout these various stages of the internet, right? Uh, the consumer internet. So, I guess I guess what my takeaway is from talking to you is like a lot of this isn't is 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 fairly transparent to the end users, and and no one's really going to be thinking about whether this is on a blockchain or not. They're going to be thinking, oh, I have this. NFT I can use that, this re- that I can redeem, and I'll just scan this QR code. And if I'm a restaurant, it's going to simply integrate with my POS system. The interface doesn't really change. The mechanism and the use cases definitely feel different, but we're not going to be talking about the infrastructure five to 10 years down the line here, it sounds like.
1: I think you're exactly right. You know, I think we, we talked earlier about Solana versus Ethereum. And, and you know, for a lot of reasons, I can tell you why Solana... But you know, at the end of the day, I don't tell you if we're building on Postgres or Microsoft SQL, right? Like the date, like we have this amazing public database that is you get so much, so much technology for so little, thanks to these blockchains like Solana, that you know that, that's the unlock for you know for us as builders. But for the consumer, you know, again, it's just better, faster, cheaper. You know, in a lot of ways, I look at, you know, you mentioned Chipotle and Starbucks and all others. Starbucks does an amazing job, right? I think, you know, if we can build an amazing loyalty and rewards program for everybody, then then we've succeeded, right? I think Starbucks can do it because they own all these stores, but how do you get this, you know, federated group of merchants that don't necessarily trust each other to work together? Because, you know, game theory says that if they do, they can all save a
0: ton. Interesting, yeah. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this uh chipotle's partnership with flex Starbucks' starbucks's odyssey starbucks is really investing on in it chipotle to me feels like a little bit of a flash in the pan one-off thing to celebrate uh, the ethereum merge for just a set of nerds that understood this 99.95 percent thing and they just played to that audience so there's a distinct difference between what those two companies are doing from my perspective chipotle is saying hey Gen or whatever you want to call the early web 3 user. Hey, we we got you like come into the store in the same way that Circle K convenience stores were letting Pokemon Go users come in and mess around in their stores with the augmented reality lens. Whereas Starbucks is saying is talk is looking at the future of loyalty and saying, you consumer, don't even need to know that this is built on Polygon we're going to create this whole new set of loyalty experiences that you can, you know, trade, redeem, earn. And it's a play to earn kind of game essentially, but it's all built on crypto, but that, that, on web three, but that doesn't really matter that this, there's a whole new experience that's going to be built for you. So I think that those are two very different value propositions. I'm curious if you can kind of expound on that a little bit more.
1: Absolutely. Like, to get it out of the way, I, I do think like Chipotle, it was fun. Like, it definitely, it, it it was of the moment, but it was a marketing gimmick, right? And and I give them credit for doing it, and I think they they did a lot there. But you know, I don't think the future is in buying food with you know variable rate you know <laughs> currencies, right? Like, <laughs> you, know, you know, I I, I look, I, I'm a big fan of what Starbucks is doing. I think they've been doing things right for a very, very long time with how they, they started with their gift cards, right? Their gift cards, you know, fund their, you know, it's, we all loan Starbucks unlimited money, you know, with uh, the, they're holding all my cash, right? For, for all the stuff. So they've got the wallet, right? They've got the, you know, games and quests, you know, for attention. They get me to buy breakfast when I don't want to buy breakfast, right? They, they have ordering and discovery, right? but they can do that because they can be top down, right? They can, you know, the smartest people in the room can be sitting in Seattle and figuring out how to orchestrate this with a very limited menu with limited SKUs, right? I think the minute you go from one to many on the, on the other side, right? The minute you go from one to many on the merchant side, like this gets very, very, very complicated. And so I think to me, Starbucks is the gold standard for a lot of these things. And, you know, when my team and I discuss, you know, what we're building next and where does it fit on the roadmap, you know, ultimately wherever we get to, you know, we realize that Starbucks is like similar, right? Like there's a lot of similarities in what they're doing because quite frankly, there's only a couple of ways to, you know, make this really work. Uh, I think the challenge is how do you have the Starbucks loyalty program with a set of adversarial merchants? right? And and so all of a sudden, like, that becomes, I think, the true hope of what crypto can unlock is, you know, if you've got these open, transparent, smart contracts, then everybody wins. The original Grubhub promise was, you know, let's partner, right? Well, let's share your customer, and I'll bring you more business, right? There was no expectation 10 years ago that, you know, we would rug them and steal the customers, right? I think that, you know, these open, transparent layers create, you know, the, the, the trust is the software, the trust is the code and, you know, people can retain ownership without giving away custody of the most important parts of their business.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. I think what you're saying about the one-to-many challenge versus the top-down approach of Starbucks closed ecosystem and the ability that that affords them to test all these things in a very controlled manner is, uh, definitely interesting because you think about the fragmentation of pos loyalty across all these different merchants it makes sense a lot of sense why you would want to go and start something like captain kind of as the building blocks before you deploy something like supper club on on top of it kind of as as we uh near the end here i'd love for you to just transport us into the future i don't know what the date is You'd have a better sense of how far along we have, how, how early we are. I always like to say five years. It feels like it might be a little bit longer than five years, but whatever it is, what does this dream kind of transaction look like that you could see becoming commonplace? That it's like literally anyone is doing at the time that we're where all these technologies get to to mass adoption. Like, what does it look like when I walk into the store? And I'm pulling out my phone. I'm ordering. What does that look like on an end-to-end? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I, I think you know. I think the the waves that we've gone through. You know, we've went from websites to apps to wallets. Wallets are coming. I think with mass adoption, you know, we're just going to use our phones for more, right? I think you know, my phone replaced my flashlight and my calculator and all these different things. And I think it still doesn't properly hold my money and my data, right? I think we still need third parties to do a lot of the, the the management there. And so, or to really be fully, you know, non-custodial. And so I think there's just a world in the future where, you know, where things like, you know, money and data becomes, you know, part of my app and part of my experience. When I walk in, I can work, I can engage with a merchant you know, without needing some other company in some other state to be in the middle of it, right? I, I think you can empower every side of this just to do more without the need for, you know, no one wants the middleman, no one wants the controls, no one wants all this cruft in the middle, which, you know, is a negative push on price, right? If you know who I am, you'll give me a better deal, right? If, if I, you know, if I'm a loyal customer that hasn't come to you in a while, why shouldn't you know that? Like all of these things, as a user, as a group of users, we should demand more for our money, right? As a merchant, I should just have this easy, right? And so I think what I see in the future is, you know, people just, you know, moving away from the credit card model, right? And moving it more toward a model where this digital cash and rewards, just, you know, is, is just how we, how we pay for things. And I think when when that ultimately happens, you know, we can, you know, it, everybody wins on pushing back on pricing.
0: Fascinating. Well, always love um, chatting about the future with you, Mike. Um, Wag me. We all g- we are gonna make it. That's right. Wishing you the b- 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 success with uh, Supper Club and Captain. Um, if people want to get started, they want to try Supper Club, or maybe they live in Chicago and they want to come to some of these really cool events. Tell them how they can get involved. And then maybe if you want to plug any job openings or any other things, restaurant, potential customers that might be interested in getting started on your software, where can we all go to get started?
1: Absolutely. We're we're always looking for more restaurants to join our network. Uh, If you go to gocaptain.com, you'll find links to Supper Club. If you go to gocaptain.com, you'll find more about what we're up to. Uh, Follow me on Twitter uh, at Saunders3000.
0: Love the Twitter handle. All right, Mike. Well, looking forward to uh, seeing this evolve and, um, you know, going down the Solana rabbit hole. Thank you so much for uh, dropping your knowledge today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's hungry with no you where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.